All right, we're going to be in Romans 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Let's start by reading God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. God, what a treasure you have given to us in this passage as We reflect on the fact that we are justified and what that means for us, what we have through justification. I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened by your word this morning. I pray that if there is any here who has not been justified, who has not been reconciled with you, that this would be the day of salvation, that they would see their need of a Savior and come to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I grew up in a kind of typical middle-class family, like increasingly higher middle-class as I grew up. I think that's probably pretty typical. Uh, When I was really young, my dad tried starting a mechanic shop. did not go super well. And so we kind of had this, this mix of we never really needed, we never didn't have what we needed, but we didn't often have a lot of luxuries, kind of just typical middle class. Uh, Any little luxury was a big deal. Uh, My dad, when I was really young, had a motorcycle. In fact, it's like my first word other than mom and dad. Mama and dada was muckle, uh, which was motorcycle because my dad would drive in the field behind us. He'd drive it to work and it was It was a pretty uh, big deal to him. But then for most of my childhood, because when you're a responsible adult, you don't have fun things like motorcycles, uh, my dad didn't have a motorcycle. But there was one specific motorcycle that he really, really wanted, he really loved. My dad, even though we're in Harley country in Wisconsin, uh, wanted a Honda Goldwing. He wanted the luxury version of a motorcycle. And most of my childhood... We didn't have it. Occasionally, he'd have some sort of like Suzuki something or whatever that was just never the Honda Goldwing. But I remember very clearly when I was in college the day my dad finally got the Goldwing. I remember it because I was home from college. It was Sunday morning. Uh, It was the summer. He got it on Saturday. 
And my bedroom was on the second floor looking back. Our house was a little weird, old farmhouse that was surrounded by a driveway, a U driveway that went all the way around. And across the driveway was our two-car garage. And my bedroom looked right out at that two-car garage. And I remember that morning, the day after I, my dad got his gold wing, I woke up, I looked out my window at about 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, and there was my dad standing next to his gold wing in his bathrobe with his helmet on. <laughs> because he had wanted that for a really long time. We've all probably had some of those things, these possessions that we have that we just... We really, really like them. And sometimes there's certainly covetousness and there's sin in that, but other times it's, it's not anything evil. It's just, this is something I, I really like. I'm really excited that I have that. I like the things that I have, these possessions that we have. And we look at them, we reflect on them, we enjoy them, we're encouraged by them. Well, this passage goes into some of the possessions that we have because we are justified by Christ. Because we stand righteous before God, we have certain things. This passage gives us a list of those things. It tells us that we have peace with God. It tells us that we have access to God. It tells us that we have hope in God. And it tells us that we have reconciliation with God. And this is all a product of our justification. Just look at that first verse. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have. So there is a ground of these possessions. There's a reason that we have these possessions. Something has happened so that we can have these possessions, and that is that we are justified. This is chapter 5 of the book of Romans. It builds on chapters 1 through 4. In chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3 up through verse 20, the epistle of the Romans, Paul uses it to make a case for the sinfulness of all humanity. He focuses on the sinfulness of those who don't even know that they know God. Those who are know but suppress that knowledge. Those who would claim, that I don't know who God is, yet they live lives that reflect some sense of the fact that they know there is a God, but no true repentance. There are those of us who just look at creation. That should be enough for us to know that there is a God. He says that in Romans chapter 1. There are also those who have a conscience. Their conscience may not be informed by the word of God, but they have a conscience. They believe they should follow it, and they still don't follow it. When you look at the world around us, I think there are all sorts of things that every person in the world would say, yeah, that's something that I shouldn't do. And yet, they do it. And their own conscience condemns them. They can't plead ignorance because they try to follow a law, but they are unable to follow any law, whether it's God's law or their own law. We are inconsistent. We are lawless. But then, in chapter 3, verse 21, we have one of the richest, most powerful sections of Scripture where it, where it talks about our justification in Christ. That word justification is a legal word. It's a courtroom word where someone is declared by the judge to be righteous. 
And so when we say that we are justified, what we are saying is that God looks on those people who are sinners, those who have rejected him. He looks on them and he says, not guilty. Now God is just, so he can't just do that because he wants to. We would not consider a judge to be just if he did not punish wrongdoing. If there is a trial for murder and the jury finds the defendant guilty of murder, and then the judge says, yep, I see that, but also I'm in a good mood today, so I'm not sending him to prison. I'm not giving any consequences. I love the guy. It's okay. If a judge did that, he'd be disrobed. I don't know if that's the right word. He'd be removed from his position because that's unjust. So God, who is just, can't just overlook sin. He can't just ignore sin. He must deal with it. Romans 3, 21 and following talks about how he does this, where by faith, we who are guilty can be united with his son and declared righteous so that the almighty judge of the earth who will do right can look on us and righteously and justly say, not guilty, because Christ takes our guilt in our place. That is the concept of justification. And it really, the pinnacle of that section, I believe it's verse 26, it says that he does this so God can be both just and justifier. He rightly deals with sin, yet he also lovingly saves people. And so our God is just and justifier. And because of this, we have rich blessings, and this passage outlines them. It starts with that word, therefore, cueing us in, that we're talking about the previous four chapters. Chapter four kind of expounded on that idea of justification, specifically talking about the justification of Abraham in the Old Testament. And we get to verse one here, and because of that justification, because since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to briefly talk about peace. That idea of peace gets picked up at the end of the passage with a more more thorough discussion under the term reconciliation. There's similar concepts here. We start though with peace. Notice that it doesn't talk about having a truce with God. It talks about having a peace with God. A truce is when hostilities temporarily cease. The fundamental problem is not dealt with in a truce. You just get to a point where everyone's just kind of tired of fighting, and so they stop. Sometimes truces last for a long time. Look at North and South Korea. The hostility's still there, right? If you doubt whether the hostility of the Korean War is still there, just go ahead over to Korea and try and walk across the border and see what's going to happen to you. That conflict still exists. There is no peace, there is no unity, there is no resolution, there is simply a cessation of open hostility. But that is not how our relationship with God is described in Romans chapter 5. There is not a temporary cessation of hostility where God just decides he's going to hold back, he's not going to deal with us and everything's okay, or we suddenly have dealt with our own sin problem. None of that happens. What actually happens in Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 3 is that the fundamental conflict at hand is solved. Those who were enemies of God are no longer enemies of God. They have peace with God. 
Each and every one of us was born into a war against a holy God. We were born fighting against him. I remember when my kids were born wondering, how long is it until I can tell that they're sinners and not just hungry? And it's not very long. It happens very early. I have had to do very little teaching of my children as to how to be mean to their brother and sister. They are very, very good at it. Now, they could use a few lessons on how to get away with it. They're very bad at that. But they know. They know. They inherited it. They watched it happen with me. They've seen sin and they produce sin. One notable theologian in the 18th century was talking through this question of infants and sin and original sin. And he says, if you take a dice and you roll it a hundred times and every time it comes up sixes, you're going to conclude the dice are loaded. It's like every child who has ever been born came out a sinner. The dice are loaded. They are, we are pulled that way. We are enemies of God, but through Christ, through his work of justification, standing in our place, taking the wrath of God, bearing our sins, crediting his righteousness to us, we have peace. This is true peace. This isn't just everything's going to be okay when nothing is going to be okay. My wife is the person who thinks everything will always be okay. I am the person who thinks that nothing will ever be okay. It's always a great mix where I'm just like, oh man, this is terrible and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this person's going to do this. This is the end of the world. And she's like, it's going to be okay. No, it's not. You don't know that. Both of us could learn a little bit from each other on this one. In Jeremiah, there are people talking to Israel, who's been promised the judgment of God, and they say, peace, peace, everything's going to be okay. But Jeremiah 6.14 says this, they have healed the wound of my people, lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Sin is a problem, and saying it's okay does not make it okay. Shouting peace, 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 talking about the love of God for everyone in a way that excuses the wickedness and the sinfulness of the world is not providing true peace. For there to be true peace, the sin, the evil, the enmity with God must be dealt with. And since we are justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we have peace through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access into this grace. We go into a place of grace. This grace of justification. Later on in this chapter in verse 21, it says this. Uh, actually, let's start in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ, we live in a world where instead of sin reigning through death, grace reigns. And so, because of this, sin's reign is gone, grace reigns, and we are able to access this through Christ. Again, think about the holiness and the righteousness of God that 
repels us from him because we are so unholy. God could not allow us to come into his presence because he is holy and we are wicked. Yet, through Christ, through this grace, he provides access. He provides entrance. Last year, well, I guess two years ago, but last year doesn't count. Uh, Two years ago, I went to the U.S. Open. Uh, It was really fun. Went up to Pebble Beach, got to uh, hang out with Paul Harmon, one of our deacons, and we watched, we watched the golf. We noticed that these guys swing a club like the same I swing a club, but their ball ends in the grass, whereas my ball ends in someone's backyard. Uh, so we got to watch it, and all around the course, you have this interesting balance where you're closer than any other sport, right? Like you're right next to it. I mean, I've got pictures of Tiger Woods like 10 feet from me swinging a golf club. And it's, it's really cool because you're so close. But try and walk across that rope and see what happens. You are only so close. You need to be much better at golf, also potentially a lot wealthier than me. And then you can go on the other side of the rope. But If you're like me, all you can do is go up to the edge of the rope. There's this prohibition of accessing the actual fairway. You can stand next to it. You can't go in. Heaven, the presence of God, similarly, we are completely prohibited from accessing. We have no right to come before a holy and righteous God. We have no right to enter into his presence. We have no right to come before him. If we will come before God, if we will have access to God, it must happen through the work of someone else making it possible, dealing with our wickedness. How different this is from a human kingdom. In the Old Testament, there's the account of Esther. I've been studying it in preparation for for small group. And one of the places where it really jumps out the difference between Esther and God, one of the places where that jumps out is when, or between Ahasuerus and God, rather, is when Esther is going to enter into Ahasuerus' presence to make an appeal. And really, the book of Esther, spoiler for small groups, but it's in a month and a half when we'll get to this point. You'll probably forget by then anyway. So uh, when we enter into the, when we look at Esther, what we see is this contrast between the good and righteous king God and the absolutely stupid king Ahasuerus. And when Esther wants to come in before Ahasuerus, she is taking her life in her hands because if she goes in and he doesn't want her there, he has every right to execute her. She goes in with fear, with trepidation, but she goes in boldly trusting the Lord, but he has power of life and death in her entrance. How different that is from our Lord who provides us access through his son. So that in Ephesians 3.12 we see in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Through our justifying faith where we have Christ's righteousness, where he takes the weight of our sin, we boldly enter before God. We boldly have access to this grace And it seems very wrong to say this, but ultimately, when we get to heaven, and I'm not saying this is how it's actually going to work out, when God says, why should I let you in? I don't, don't, that makes good jokes, but I don't think it's in the Bible. But when we make our appeal for the presence of God for eternity, we can actually say, God, let me in because it's right for you to let me in. 
Because in Christ, our sin is actually dealt with and it is just and righteous for God to welcome us as adopted children. How different that is from a world that pushes people out. Our Lord welcomes us and makes a way for us to come before him and worship him, to be loved and adopted by him. Through our justification, we have access. The third possession we have through our justification is we have hope. Verse number two, the second half says this, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to that day when we see the glory of God. Uh, This word rejoice could also be translated boasting. We rejoice or we boast in the, uh, the glory of God. We have this hope. We look forward to the day when we see what we cannot see now, when we enter into the place that we cannot see now, when God's glory is fully revealed to us, when we are able to be with him. This is clearly talking about the future. It's not talking about what happens right now. In a world where we're continually reminded of heartache and sadness, of sorrow, of evil, this idea of hope should be such an encouragement to us that one day, We can take joy in the glory of God. We hope in the glory of God. And what a stark contrast this is from just two chapters before. In chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. Just this short time later, walking through this path of justification, we get to the point where we're not talking about falling short of the glory of God, but hoping in the glory of God. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God that is coming And so we have hope as we wait. But he goes on, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we hope in the glory of God, but we hope specifically in our times of present sufferings. We rejoice in suffering. We don't just rejoice in this kind of neutral state of everything's okay now, but someday it's going to be better. We rejoice in suffering as we look forward to the day when the hope of the glory of God is fulfilled. And as we hope in suffering, our suffering changes us. It produces in us endurance. That endurance produces in us a steadfast character and ultimately strengthens our hope. So often, as Christians, we we talk about eternity in this almost escapist sense that like we're just going to make it through this and then we're going to get there. But here, it's, it's grounding it in the here and now too. We endure with hope today. We don't look at the problems of the world and say, ah, not a big deal. Someday I'm going to heaven. I don't need to worry about any of that. We actually live in a world of suffering. And that suffering is intended for our good. It's intended to produce endurance. We're not just hitting the ejection seat on the world that God has made, but we are living in it with an understanding that it is good, but it is temporary. It is flawed, but it will one day be restored. We long for heaven. We long for the glory of God. But we are able to long as we endure and suffer in this life. 
knowing that in God's economy, trials and sufferings will change us for the better. This is repeated throughout the New Testament. A lot of the time you'll see uh, repetition of concepts in one specific New Testament author. Okay, so you'll see Paul repeats the concept over and over and over again. He has a very Paul flavor to how he writes. John, similarly, we're going to talk about love. You see a Bible verse about love and the Bible? It's almost always going to be John writing it because that's just one of his themes. When you're talking about justification, often it's going to be Paul. It's not like John didn't believe in justification and Paul doesn't believe in love. No, they just have their different emphases, the different things that they focus on. But this idea of suffering through trials is so present that it's found all throughout all of the authors of the New Testament. It's here in Paul. In the book of James, verses 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Paul sees trials and their work to change us. James sees trials and their work to change us. Peter, in this, about 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus, this is kind of the warp and the woof of what the life of someone who follows Christ is. We are following Christ in suffering, knowing that suffering works to change us. So in trials, instead of praying that we be delivered from trials, we ought to pray for endurance, character, and hope in trials. Trials will come. And certainly the Bible tells us to pray for the sick. It's not wrong to pray for deliverance as well. But more important than getting out of the suffering is glorifying God in the suffering. Allowing the suffering to be that tool that God uses the chisel and the hand of the sculptor chipping away at the things that need to go revealing the character that is underneath because we have been changed through Christ. Our suffering is good and it brings glory to God But hope is a muscle that we must exercise. It does not happen on accident. Weak times make weak people. Places when we are not challenged and stretched make it so that we are lethargic in our walk with the Lord, so that we are weak, so that our faith is not strong. But this tells us that for our faith to be strengthened, we must endure trials, but we can endure trials because we have confidence in our Lord. Verse 6, or pardon me, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. We will not be embarrassed by living a life of hope in the Lord because that hope will be delivered on one day. The glory is coming, so we endure, we trust the Lord to change us, we, we seek to follow him in our trials, we endure knowing that our hope will not put us to shame. How do we know that? Because of the rich gifts God has already given us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, Christ died for us. So our confidence, our hope, and our ultimate glory is not found in our strength. Because the only reason we are on the path towards that ultimate glory is because when we were weak, Christ died for us. It is not my strength that will get me through the sufferings and the trials of this world. It is not my strength that will allow me to have hope when my world is falling apart, when my body is falling apart, when my relationships are hostile, when my loved ones are estranged. When my finances are in crisis, it is not my strength that gives me hope because my hope comes from the Lord who saved me while I was weak, not while I was strong. And so we endure, not because we have so much endurance, but because we are strengthened by a God who loved us when we are weak. Not only did God love us when we were weak without regard for our merit, for our usefulness, God loved us while we were his enemies. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I would like to think that I would die for my family. I think I would. I'm I'm, I'm confident I would. I'd like that to not be put to the test, but I think I would. Uh, I told my wife when we first got married that if anyone ever tries to mess with her, I will stand up for her, but she better run fast because I will not last very long. (laughs) I would hope that I would lay down my life for my family. I would hope that I would lay down my life for my church family. I I hope that I would. I believe that I would. I would have a much harder time laying down my life for my enemies. We talk about the heroism of people giving their life for others, whether it's uh, the secret service and what they have to do for the president, or uh, many times uh, soldiers who go into war willing to lay down their life for the sake of our country. But we don't do that for our enemies. Can you imagine a, a few years back when SEAL Team 6 was raiding the, the, the place where Osama bin Laden was? Can you imagine the lead guy walks into the room, sees Osama bin Laden, the guy behind him comes in the room, he's like, no, wait, and he jumps in front of the bullet for Osama bin Laden. That would be nonsense, right? We don't give our life for our enemies. They're there to take out their enemies. They're there to deal with the enemy, not to die for the enemy, Die for his friends, maybe. Die for his enemy, never. Yet look how God loves us. He did not die for us. Christ did not die for us when we were his friend. He did not die for us when we were his follower. He died for us when we were rebels against him. He died for us when we were his enemies. He died for us when we hated him. So how much more hope can we have now when we are adopted, beloved sons that he will bring us to the end? If he would die for us when he was our enemy, how will he love us when he is our father? This encourages us. This encourages us to be confident and hope. 
We have confidence in God who demonstrates his love for us. Finally, we have reconciliation. Verses 9 through 11. This is rehashing kind of what was talked about in peace. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that same idea, we have been justified, so how much more will he save us from the wrath of God? This is important for us to remember. What are we saved from? The wrath of God. God saves us from not Satan, not ourselves. That's the more spiritual sounding answer people give to that. God saves us from God. From his own wrath. Because we have been justified by his blood, because he has died for us, how much more confident should we be that we will be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This deals with the past, and it deals with the future. We have been justified, and we will be saved. Right? So sometimes we use saved as shorthand for justified. That's not a great thing to do because it causes some confusion. Salvation is not a moment-in-time thing. It's a long-term thing. Justification happens at a specific moment in time. Unrighteous, Christ-righteousness, righteous. Right? That's a moment in time. Salvation is something that includes sanctification, our growth in the Lord. It includes glorification, the one day entrance into glory. So it's this process. We are confident that that process will be completed because of the justification, because we have been reconciled. We are confident. But it's not just dealing with our past and our future. It is dealing with our present. Because look at the end of verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have all these rich benefits from God. We have peace. We have access. We have hope. We have reconciliation. So how does the justified saint live in a world filled with suffering and sorrow and a world in rebellion to God? The justified saint lives in that world with joy. We rejoice. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Much like my dad looking at his gold wing, we ought to be reflecting on the goodness and graciousness of Christ in every moment. When you make the mistake of watching the news... We ought to be encouraged. I'm reconciled. This is also bad, and I don't want to ignore that it's bad, but I am reconciled, so I am not despondent. I am not hopeless. When you have failed as a parent, hope I'm not the only one that does that occasionally, when you have chosen to discipline your children so that they stop bothering you rather than discipline them so they look more like Jesus, When you do that and you're feeling the weight of being a much worse father than your father God, you are reconciled. You have hope. You have access to God. You have peace with God. 
like a newly engaged woman who just stares at her ring from every possible angle. We ought to be looking at the gospel of Christ, which has turned us from weak enemies of God to beloved, reconciled sons, and we ought to be filled with joy in our deepest sorrows, in our deepest pain. We ought to have a heart that is overflowing with joy, not because we ignore them, not because that we declare there is peace when there is no peace, not because this world isn't broken, not because death isn't sorrowful, not because the bad stuff in the world isn't bad, but because the goodness of God is so good that we hope, we long for, we look for, we anticipate the glory that is to come and we endure because we are upheld by our Lord. So to each of us this morning, if you are without peace, if you are without access, if you are without hope, if you are without reconciliation, if you sit here this morning trying to live a life that's good enough to satisfy a perfect God, you will fall short. You will not succeed. And you will be miserable not succeeding. If that is you, I beg of you, come to the one who justifies. Come to the one who saves. Come to the one who died for you, who took the weight of your sin on his shoulders for you. Do not carry it yourself because you cannot carry it yourself. Come to Christ today. Be granted peace and reconciliation with the judge of the world through Christ. However, for those of us here, and I hope there are very, very many who are right now in Christ, who are right now justified, who when God looks upon you as judge, sees the righteousness of his son rather than your own wickedness, rejoice. Rejoice. Endure. Follow this Lord. He is worth following. Love people like he loves you. Take joy in suffering knowing that it is temporary, knowing that God is good, knowing that it works to change you, to be more like him, to give you the things that are most important in the world. Reflect on that. Look at it. Admire it. Consider the rich possessions God has given you in the gospel that you can say, if you are in Christ, I have hope. I'm reconciled. I have peace with God. I have access to God. Allow that to encourage you and strengthen you as you live. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would encourage each one of us to live lives of faithfulness to you because we are confident not in ourselves, but confident in you. Confident in your faithfulness, confident in your goodness, knowing that our sin is dealt with in our Savior knowing that we have access to you, knowing that we uh, have peace with you, knowing that we can take joy in the hope of what is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.